Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everybody, before we get started, I just want to encourage everyone here, watch the select committee on January 6th hearings. I think it is an important historical record of one of the worst days in our country's history. And I think it's important that you are able to see for yourselves just what happened on that day, who was responsible, and that you can share that information with your friends and your family and your colleagues when they say none of it matters. Every bit of it matters. I hope you'll tune in. I hope you'll find all of our content, ask us questions. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm excited to welcome back to the show the one, the only, George Conway. He is a super lawyer, contributing columnist for The Washington Post, and a man all about town. George, glad to have you back. Well, thanks for having me. So, George, today we're recording this episode on the evening of June 14th, before the third public hearing from the House Select Committee on January 6th, which is now scheduled to take place sometime on Thursday. This will drop probably right after the third hearing. So I want to get into some of what your thoughts are already about what you've seen, what else you expect to see, and then what you think the outcome will be of this. And I know that you and I have spent the last couple of years, even more than that, probably dissecting Donald Trump himself. Obviously, you're very close to it. The administration, all the people around him. So as Rick likes to say, we're the anthropologists of the worst people in the world sometimes. <laughs> but let's start. So what do you think so far? I think they've been doing a fantastic job. I have no material complaints about how they've conducted themselves. I thought that last Thursday, they did a terrific job introducing the whole set of hearings. I thought the chairman's statement was great and at a very high level and setting the moral tone. And, I, and then I thought that Liz Cheney did a masterful prosecutorial opening statement that the Department of Justice could use in, a, in an actual criminal case brought against a, a certain person. They just did a great job. They previewed a lot of stuff. You know, they didn't use all the video they had. There's clearly going to be a ton more, but they managed to bring out some of the really good stuff early on to get people's attention, like the clip of Bill Barr saying bullshit. They used that a couple of times. They used, yeah, they used that a couple of times. They used that a couple of, and then, you know, it, to me, it never grows old. And, and uh, you know, I mean, the impact of actually seeing these people say these things is so much greater than, you know, reading it in even a Bob Woodward book or a, one of these many books where the reporters are basically writing it on background in an omniscient way. It, to actually see these people like Stepien and Barr and Miller say these things that they told the guy, you know, it was bullshit. It was wrong. That he should have waited. And it's all being told. The only non-Trump witness was the guy from Fox News. And it's all being told from the standpoint of Trump's own people. And it's not some liberal conspiracy. It's just these people were telling him he was all wet. And it's a very important 
foundation for the rest of the hearings, the, you know, the second day, which was Monday, when they talked to, you know, basically to, laid the foundations for showing, exposing the big lie. From that, everything else hinges. And especially, you know, if there's a criminal case, you know, Donald Trump's criminal intent is shown by the fact that he was told repeatedly over and over again. And then he ignored the facts. He didn't seem to care about the facts. Barr testified to that. And then Richard Donahue, the acting deputy attorney general, testified about how they debunked something that Trump said and Trump wouldn't fight back. He'd just go to the next crazy theory. He didn't care about the facts. He knew it was all BS. Right. And so this is one of those things I mean, I've, I found fascinating, George, is that if the Stepians of the world, if the Jared and Ivanka's of the world had not been compelled by subpoena to testify, would they have ever actually given their testimony? No, of course not. I mean, Barr obviously told his story to a number of reporters and he actually went out and said on December 1st, 2020, that Trump had lost. But, you know, we wouldn't have seen him saying bullshit. Ivanka certainly wouldn't have said a word publicly. Stepien wouldn't have said anything. He's not and only the people who are writing books might have said something depending on what their attitude toward Trump is. And I think there's all of this stuff, um, the most we've seen it is in the form of, you know, the omniscient writing based upon background sources in books. So Jared and Ivanka, why did they comply with the subpoena? Why not defy it? That's a good question. I think at the end of the day, they would have failed to do that. I think to some extent they have their own agenda. I think Ivanka has been trying to say, you know, I tried to do my best without openly attacking her father. I think they don't want the legal trouble. And then you've got, you know, a whole bunch of these folks we've seen. But then there's a lot of folks who have also either defied the subpoena, some of them, you know, the Bannons of the world. Some have pled the fifth. And so I guess my question is, well, first of all, George, I always find it the height of irony, although irony is dead in America today, that you try to subvert the Constitution and you're now using it to protect yourself. But yeah, um, <laughs> yeah well, but know. why take the fifth if you don't have anything to hide? Maybe that's an unfair question, but I don't think it's an unfair question because I think the answer is they do have something to hide. I mean, John Eastman took the fifth 146 times, I think, in his deposition. This guy Clark, who was the head of the environmental division of the Justice Department took the fifth. And the people who are close to Trump are exposed. Meadows, I don't know what Meadows' story is. Meadows produced a lot of documents and then he refused to cooperate further. And then there was a motion for contempt uh, passed by the House, but the Justice Department isn't going to prosecute it. I mean, maybe it means he's cooperating. I don't know. I mean, he's got exposure. He could take the fifth as well. I don't think Jared Ivanka actually would have had exposure. Jared was busy off in Saudi Arabia. You know, if he's going to take the fifth, it's got to be with that, not January 6th. And, you know, Ivanka, I think basically she was a cipher and then she actually did try to act responsibly to some extent on January 6th. So I don't think she's got any exposure. You know, it's interesting to focus on Stepien because I find Stepien maybe a little bit, I don't want to say necessarily relatable. He looks like a regular guy, right? He doesn't sort of come across as the Trump guy. He's very much a political mechanic. You know, he and I are of the same generation. I don't want to say the same cohort, but we work with some of the same people, either directly or indirectly work for some of the same people. And so it's always fascinating to me to see somebody be like, you know, if we were in Dr. Strange's multiverse, would that be me sitting there in my living room next to my attorney? <laughs> and when, when Stepien was first chosen, I mean, he, he was never really a Trump guy. 
but he is a professional who will basically, he's for hire and he'll do any, I guess, reasonable candidate. And I think in the case of somebody asking you to do a presidential campaign at that late in the stage, it's like, you've got nothing to lose, right? Because it's like, if you lose the campaign that was already done, doing that 140 days out or whatever it was, and you know, there was nothing to lose for him. Well, it also is very interesting to hear, and this is, it's where you see these little tidbits of, you know, making sure they knew, like, I got there with a hundred and some days to go. The place was an operational and financial disaster, which, which I, is, I think I is also true. <laughs> right? yeah, we believe that. But to stay on Stepien for a second, George, because I want to debunk this thing that he said about the quote unquote normal people. Team normal. Right. Team normal, which they're only team normal in the context and within the Trump organization. Right. I mean, there's nothing normal. Everything is upside down. Everything is crazy because you're dealing with him. And he's like this moral black hole where everything's swirling around him and nothing good can happen. And everything that, you know, to quote a friend of ours, everything that Trump touches dies. And so normal is absolutely a relative thing. You know, I mean, the psychologists actually have this concept of malignant normality. And there was just a malignant normality that surrounded everything having to do with Donald Trump, where you're just, even if you're trying to behave relatively normally and do the right thing, you have to work around the boss. And I think that's the other question too, is Stepien said, I stepped away, but he didn't quit, right? He just sort of disappeared into the shadows. Yeah. You know, he, he pulled like a Jared. Right. And that was going to, Jared was going to be my next one, which is like, Jared and Ivanka, are like, we're moving to Miami. Ivanka's going to do whatever she's going to do, whatever she was doing in the interregnum. Jared's making plans for the Middle East. But they're sort of all out of sight, out of mind. And so even in that context, right, the quote unquote normals, with the exception, I think it appears anyway, at least at the beginning, the attorneys, the political types, you know, once they realize, OK, he ain't going to listen, whether or not it's Miller or the data guys. Yeah, they get out. Yeah. And the normals like head for the hills, even Barr, who was an enabler of the highest order. I mean, he got out and it's just the easy way to deal with a guy like Trump is just to basically don't be in his sight. Right. Sort of like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. If it can't see you moving, it right, won't attack Right. Right. So exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is Jurassic Park, Trump version. And what happens is there, there's a vacuum that forms or the team normal leaves. And then all the lunatics came in, especially with the help of Mark Meadows, who, you know, has the backbone of, you know, a chocolate eclair to use the old phrase. Let me ask you this, because it was interesting to hear, and I, I don't know if we'll hear more attorneys, but there was the guy from the Kazowitz law firm, Hirschman, who, you know, he came in. I don't really know him. I don't know of him, but he seemed to be, you know, at least in his testimony. I mean, he's been working, I assume, around the Trump people for many years because I think Kazowitz is our law firm that he's like, this isn't normal. This is BS. You know, I was fascinated with the expression on his face during the deposition clips that he played. He was just like, you know, he had this incredulous look like, I can't believe I'm telling all this stuff about these crazy people. And it's, he was amused in a weird way, telling the story about the insanity. And that's the better lawyers, you know, they all felt that way about Trump. I mean, I was once told by someone who'd worked in the White House counsel's office that when I started my going off the reservation and tweeting stuff, I was told that, you know, some of my biggest Twitter fans were in the White House counsel's office in 2018, 2019. And Trump is exasperating to lawyers. It's funny. They play that clip of Jared saying, oh, I just, it was just all whining. They always threatened to resign. It's like, if you are a lawyer for Donald Trump in any capacity, if you are not threatening to resign on a 
frequent basis, you're not acting ethically, okay? So I'm sure they were always threatening to resign, but that doesn't make it whining, as Jared puts it. But at what point, though, George, as an attorney, whether or not you're within the White House counsel's office, whether or not the president of the United States is your professional or your personal client, can you speak out? I mean, is there a privilege that has to be protected when you believe also that there might be either a criminal act having taken place, criminal intent? I am at best a jailhouse lawyer. So I'm just curious because there's so many of these lawyers that hung around as long as they did. Is it one of those things like there are no guardrails left? We might be the only ones because now you've got the Kraken lady, you've got Eastman, you've got all the other nuts coming in. Yeah, I actually am not as critical of the lawyers, the good lawyers who surrounded Trump, you know, in the White House counsel's office at the highest levels of the Justice Department, because at the end of the day, I think they helped save the day. And I think they did that because they were, they're lawyers, they're trained to spot illogic and nonsense, and they also have ethical obligations. And these people who resisted Trump in December and January of 2020 and 2021, like Rosen and Donahue and basically the entire upper echelon of the Department of Justice other than this fellow Clark, you know, at the end of the day, they helped preserve the Republic. I mean, you know, they kept Trump from doing some of the crazy stuff like having the military seize ballots, not that that would have happened, and then having Clark's letter sent to the various states asking them to reconsider their electoral votes. I mean, they basically said, you know, we send that letter and we'll resign. And you make him attorney general, this guy Clark, we'll resign. And to their credit, that stopped Trump dead in his tracks because Trump knew that that would create such an uproar that his effort to steal the election would fail. But let me ask you that, because we should remember that this is not the select committee on Donald Trump being crazy. We don't need that. And it's not the select committee on Donald Trump refusing to believe he lost the election. It's on January 6th. And so I guess my question is, in any great tragedy or disaster, there's always a chain of things that occur right up until the time that disaster actually happens. Yeah. And I think, you know, they're not the committee of those things. But the fact of the matter is, January 6th was the inevitable result of Trump being crazy and all of his bad behavior and all of the things that led up to it. I remember being on conference calls with you back in 2020 when we were talking about what do we do if this guy basically refuses to accept the results? Remember? We had lots of discussions about that. And it was real. And, you know, he was telegraphing what he was going to do. And so it, it is about Trump in the end. It's about Trump and his psychology and about all the other bad things that happened because January 6th, the violence on January 6th, it was inextricably tied to every other effort he made to retain power contrary to the Constitution. Right. And so I guess, you know, now you talk about Meadows, right? You're chief of staff at the White House. You're not prime minister. You're not junior president, but you ride in the control car in the motorcade. In a typical world, you're the first person to see the president in the morning, the last person to see the president at night. You get Secret Service protection. I mean, it's really cool. You get Secret Service protection, the whole ballgame. He had to know that what Trump was espousing, what he did that night, it was in the East Room or wherever, when he said, in fact, we did win, Meadows had to know, even if it wasn't a decided thing, that that was A, the wrong thing to do. And then subsequently, as the votes started coming in, that Trump had indeed lost, and it was incumbent, to use a phrase, upon him probably to stop this. Yeah. And Meadows, I mean, Meadows is clearly not the brightest bulb in the box or the sharpest knife in the box. But 
Yeah, he had to have known that. But Meadows, I think the record is showing, these books show, and I think the record of his text messages that have been released by CNN published, you know, show that he was just trying to appease everybody. He'd get a crazy email from a Ginny Thomas and say, uh, and he'd, he'd humor her and he'd humor Trump by letting people in. And he actually tried to intervene in Georgia with Raffensperger and his staff. And he was playing both sides. And then he was also saying, well, you know, we're trying to tamp him down. We're trying to tamp him down to basically people who thought they were on team normal. And he was playing both sides of the street because he didn't have the courage or the conviction or the moral fortitude. He was just trying to maintain his position in the center of the ring by keeping Donald Trump reasonably happy and not trying to piss anybody off. And that's why he kept asking for Ivanka. I doubt he was the one who was basically saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. He was letting people in who were saying, you've got to do this, you've got to say something, you've got to put a statement out. Your son said this, he texted me this. But, you know, he's probably just playing the messenger and a real person with real moral fortitude would have basically gone out to the press room and said, I'm the chief of staff here. I've not pulled quite an Al Haig and say, I'm in charge here, but say, this has to stop. And would say, oh, the president, I've tried to get the president to do it. He wouldn't do it. You know, the ability of this guy to basically corrupt everyone around him and, and make them afraid is just extraordinary. You know, if you're sitting in the Oval Office, like, you know, the power of the office, the power of the president. It's intoxicating, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, it's intoxicating. I mean, but it seems that he's been able to do this to people for decades. So his venue changed, but his behavior and his effect didn't. Yeah. And that's true of extreme narcissists generally. It happens in relationships. It happens with families. It happens in toxic workplaces other than the White House or the Trump organization where the guy who's nominally in charge or one spouse or some cousin or somebody just beats on everybody. And it's just easier just to sort of humor him or avoid him than it is to confront him. It's just not worth it. That's what Trump did to everybody. The problem is what he did to the republic. And also the thing about it is if, if enough of a critical mass of people in the Republican Party had gotten together at some point to say enough is enough, maybe things would have turned out differently. Far be it for me to say that because I supported the guy in 2016. It took me another year to figure it out that this guy was completely as bad, worse than what his critics were saying. But at some point, I think the people on, the, on Capitol Hill, for example, figured it out before I did. And they, you know, they cowered. You know, I was thinking about this. So I think the press calls the race for Biden. That was November 7th, I think, or 8th. Yeah, it was like the Saturday or something. Yeah, that following weekend. Right. McConnell won't say anything. None of his conference will say anything. McCarthy won't say anything. None of his conference will say anything. And so they continue their silence, to your point, provides Trump an avenue to continue. Right. And then McConnell, you know, the reason why apparently, according to these books, didn't come out in the testimony yet the other day, but the reason why Barr did what he did, he called in this AP reporter for lunch on December 1st, 2020, to basically say, we haven't found any basis to overturn the election. He did that apparently at the behest of McConnell. And McConnell basically wanted the whole thing to stop because he felt he was afraid about Georgia. He was afraid that Trump was going to screw up Georgia, which ultimately he did. You know, and then I give McConnell a little bit of credit because he basically told after the electoral count vote day, whichever that was, December 14th, he spoke to Trump and said, you lost. And that was the last time they've ever spoken. But, you know, he didn't say anything publicly. 
There should have been a bunch of grown-ups saying, okay, this is enough. You've lost 60 lawsuits. If they said it on December 15th, it would have been a little late. But if they had all said, I congratulated Joe Biden today, Joe Biden is president, it would have been much harder for Trump to pull the shit off that he tried to pull off over the next two weeks. But they didn't. They just hoped Trump would quietly go away. And he was never going to do that. You know, if there was any any argument at all, you know, and, and there wasn't here. It's crazy. The states that were in play weren't any, anywhere close to being actually in play on a recount basis. Right. I mean, Steyerwalt said you'd be better off playing the Powerball. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> granted, in, in a sense, the election was close because if you switch 22, 23,000 votes in the right places, the Electoral College could have gone the other way, but it didn't. And, you know, you can only do recounts for like Florida, 600 votes or 1,000 votes max. And they just didn't have it. Well, and Ben Ginsburg, who I've known for decades, even said that too. He was the lead counsel for George W. Bush in Florida. I was in Florida for five weeks in 2000. Said, you know, 10,000 votes, not close. No 11,000 votes, not right. close. You know, I think somebody told me that in that 2000 campaign, it might have been Stewart too, that Bush lost New Mexico by like 300 and they didn't go for a recount. They lost Iowa by like 600 and they didn't go for a recount. Right. And that's because you actually have to you divide by the number of votes. It's got to be razor thing or there has to be one massive addition mistake somewhere and it just doesn't happen. So let's look forward a little bit. So what do you expect to see from the committee over these last several hearings? And they're trying to jam them all into June. You know, they've decided on six. Right. I think they were supposed to have seven. They scheduled six and then they canceled or moved the one tomorrow. So I don't know what they're going to do next week. They kind of have their back up against the wall. They've got these Supreme Court cases that are potentially going to black out the sun in terms of news coverage. So they have their work cut out for them. But substantively, I mean, the kinds of things that I gather they're going to do make a lot of sense. Trump's attempt to corrupt the Justice Department and how they all threaten to resign. And it's going to be dramatic because they do have actual testimony of actual Trump lawyers, including Donahue, Rosen, and I think Cipollone. And that's going to be quite dramatic. And I, I actually think that's actually important for a bunch of different reasons. But one reason, I mean, it shows his intent to overturn the election by any means and corrupting the Justice Department and doing it because he didn't actually want an investigation. He just wanted them to say that there was fraud and send it back to the states, which is completely illegal. It was just like Ukraine, where he basically said, just announced an investigation, he was telling the Ukrainian, same kind of thing. And to me, it's like, not only does it a conspiracy to fraud the United States and obstructing, attempt to obstruct the proceeding, the statutes that people talk about most when they're talking about presidential criminal liability for Trump, but it's also, it was a violation of the Hatch Act, a criminal violation of the Hatch Act, because by saying, just announced that there was fraud and let me and the Republican congressman take care of it, which is what Trump essentially said to these Justice Department officials, he was asking them to commit a brazenly political act, far more political than somebody wearing a MAGA button, which is also would be illegal if you made a federal employee do that. So that's one. I think that's going to be a very exciting program when they actually get to it. And then I don't know exactly what the thematic breakdown is for the rest of the hearings, but they're going to end up having to do a hearing on what the hell was Trump doing in the Oval for 187 minutes during the riot. And that's going to be quite devastating, I think. And then they have to tie it all together and show that, it, again, I mean, the whole point of this is and bring it back to the violence to show how awful that day was. But the whole idea, I think, of these hearings is while you want people to understand 
how horrible the day was and the violence of that day and how terrible it was, that it was part of something much larger, a much larger multifaceted attempt. And I haven't even gotten to the fake electors and the intimidation of state officials with Raffensperger. I mean, there's so many strands to this all leading to one person and to one object, one person being Donald Trump and the object being to basically overturn the Constitution of the United States. Let me ask you this from a legal perspective. You can think about a criminal conspiracy to distribute drugs, a criminal conspiracy to defraud the government, whatever it is. If you use those examples, very broad examples, somebody had an idea, a whole bunch of people were in on it, and they all tried to achieve a singular outcome, a singular goal, a singular operation. But for a guy like Trump, who had a goal, but isn't necessarily known for his linear or step-by-step thinking, can you create a conspiracy without the organizational capabilities to do so? A conspiracy, you know, doesn't have to be all that organized. All you need is the agreement, tacit or otherwise, to engage in a certain set of criminal acts. And all it takes is for that intent to be formed, that understanding to be formed. It can be in a conversation. It could be, you know, Tony Soprano saying, did you take care of that other thing? Make sure you take care of that thing, okay? You got it. That could be it. And then all you have to do is commit one overt act and you can have a criminal conspiracy. The real question is proving the intent of a guy whose brain is mush. But it's clear that he was doing everything he could to stop the counting of electoral votes on January 6th because he knew that's the end of the road. He understood that's when the president is formally elected. So where's Trump go from here? Because, you know, you hear, oh, he's likely to get back in because of DeSantis. But does the threat? Well, let me ask you this first. One, does he have legitimate criminal exposure? Yes, I think he has legitimate criminal exposure. And I think the sleeper in all this, I mean, we don't really know what the Justice Department is doing, but the Justice Department is moving its way up the food chain. But I have a strong feeling, and from everything I've been hearing, that the place to watch actually is the Fulton County DA's office. Right, down in Georgia. And the press hasn't been focusing on that too much because everybody's talking about the audience of one here for this hearing being Merrick Garland. And they're not wrong that that's the audience, him, Garland, and and other people at Ninth in Pennsylvania. But I think the people, from what I've been hearing, I think in Georgia, they're very, very serious. And these hearings even the stuff that doesn't directly relate to Georgia and the call to Raffensperger and the call to the investigator in Georgia all could be part of a criminal case because it shows the man's criminal intent to violate the laws, not just the federal laws, but any state laws protecting against electoral fraud. You know, he was trying to do it in Georgia and all this stuff is going to be really useful for a case in Georgia. Well, and The attorney general, Merrick Garland, who many people have said, you got to get on this, you got to get on this, actually said in a press conference, I believe it was yesterday as we're taping this, we at the Justice Department are watching these hearings. I am also watching these hearings, which I don't know the criminology of the Justice Department, George, but I don't feel like he would say something like that by accident. Right. I know he wouldn't. And remember, he gave a very nice speech on the anniversary of January 6th this year where he basically said that no matter what their office is, we're going to look at people. And he kind of explained like the way you conduct these investigations is you work your way up. I don't remember the exact language he used, but you know, if he's true to his word that day, they're going to take a serious look at Trump. 
So you mentioned the Fulton County District Attorney, that's Atlanta. If the DA down there requested evidence, information, whatever, from the January 6th committee, would they cooperate? Yeah. And my understanding is that they already have been. Okay. My understanding is, and I think it's been reported. I mean, I don't think the details have been reported, but people from Georgia have been up here. And I don't know what stuff they're getting, but the fact of the matter is, I think all this stuff is going to be dumped out there at some point. Right. And just to take a quick step out into purely electoral politics, clearly Republicans in Georgia roundly trounced David Perdue, Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, who taped the infamous phone call with Trump and Cleta Mitchell and Meadows, also got past the 50% plus one threshold. So he will be the nominee. And so, you know, it's interesting that, you know, having been a, a longtime Texan, right, they say don't mess with Texas. It was a little bit like Republicans in Georgia said, don't, don't mess with Georgia, Mr. Trump. But let me ask you this. I mean, we posited that Trump might decide to announce a second run, or I guess it would be a third run at the White House to protect himself from prosecution. Do you believe such a run would do that? Well, I think he's going to run because he can't think of anything else to do. And He's not going to like ceding the limelight to anyone else. And also because I think he will try to use the fact that he's a candidate as protection against a prosecution. And I think he will foment more violence if he gets the chance. I think that's regardless of whether or not he's prosecuted. I think ultimately if he's in an election campaign that he's going to lose again. And what a malignant narcissist does is they'll tear the place down before they concede defeat. I mean, remember, I, I like to think of Hitler and the Nero order to Albert Speer, you know, destroy all the bridges. But Mein Fjord, you know, how are the German people going to eat? And he's like, yeah, well, I don't care about them. They let me down is what Hitler's response was. Right. And Putin's doing the same thing, right? If I can't have Ukraine, nobody can. That's how these malignant narcissists roll. And that's the big danger. I don't think Trump would win. Although, who knows, with inflation and it's not a great environment to be an incumbent, but I think that Trump would do a lot of damage even running, and I think he will run. I think it's going to be a complete effing shit show. And, okay, well, who's going to run against him? The only way you could beat him would be like one-on-one. -on -one. So it would have to be like DeSantis going one-on-one -on -one against Trump. But even then, you know, your problem is if you have more than one person He's going to get a plurality of the votes, and then he's going to get, with the delegate rules being what they are, he's going to get the nomination. Also, remember that all of these people, all these guys, the Rat Pack, as I like to call them, they all believe that it should be their turn. So none of them are going to do that. Right. And DeSantis is young. So DeSantis, you might reasonably take the view, is like, I got the best shot at beating him, but let's let him blow up. He's got many more cycles to go. I think that's right. And to get really nerdy on you before we wrap up here is, you know, how many state parties does Trump own where he could say, you know, you guys are going to say we're going to just do this by acclamation? They did that in 2020. Right. The Republican Party is a private organization, right? It doesn't answer to anybody. So if a state party wants to say this, they do it. They were doing that shit because of Joe Walsh. I mean, right. come on. And Bill Weld. <laughs> and Bill Weld. Yeah. It's like we're not going to have a primary. Because we don't want to embarrass the fear, the leader who, who might not get 100% of the vote. Well, listen, George, I want to thank you for joining me today. Before we let you get out of here, where can everybody find you online? Online, I mean, the place to find me will not surprise you is Twitter, at GT Conway 3D. And you're also on a number of networks discussing what you're saying, yeah? I've been, yeah, I've been kind of bouncing around this week doing a lot of stuff because this is the week to do it. 
This is the week to do it. Well, as always, gang, you can always find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, George Conway. Thank you for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.